Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this live episode of Tape Notes is S.G. Lewis to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album Audio Lust and Higher Love. Samuel George Lewis, better known as S.G. Lewis, is a singer, producer, and songwriter from Reading, England. Having spent his teenage years playing in local bands, Sam began experimenting with electronic production and remixing. In 2015, he began posting tracks online and quickly built a loyal following for his evocative beats. After catching the attention of music execs with his remix of Jesse Ware's You and I Forever, he signed to PMR Records. Following the release of five successful EPs between 2015 and 2019, Sam set to work on his debut album. Fueled by his long-standing love of house, funk and disco, Times was released in February 2021. It featured guest appearances from Nile Rodgers, Robin and many others and reached number one in the UK dance charts. Quickly becoming modern pop's new secret weapon, he began to collaborate with more and more high-profile artists, co-writing Dua Lipa's Hallucinate and performing and producing as a featured artist on tracks with Elton John, Khalid and Ray BLK, among many others. Sam's second album, Audio Lust and Higher Love, released in January 2023, builds on the kaleidoscopic future disco of times, split into two worlds, the darker ego-driven Audio Lust and its selfless counterpart, Higher Love. So now, let's head to Mother Headquarters in Shoreditch, East London, to join Sam and a live audience, all listening on headphones via our incredible new Sennheiser Live Rig. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Infatuation. Wonderful S.G. Lewis, please. <laughs> Sam George Lewis, as he was known to his teachers, and Sam was just telling me that it seems as if roles have been reversed because when he was at college studying music production, his teachers didn't really look after him or take no, to him. They thought I, he was a naughty boy. Well, I, I, but now I, he's the guru. Well, it was my fault. I stopped going to my lectures because I started making songs in my bedroom and then I stopped attending. So I'm. It was kind of my fault mostly that, you know, I was failing the course because I was just spending all my time working on remixes and stuff. So then when it came to the the exams and the, the coursework, they just weren't very happy with me. <laughs> so Tricky, tricky business. But yeah. then at the same time, you were applying yourself because you were actually making the music and, yeah. and uh, working it, it's on a, production. It's a difficult one with studying something creative because I dropped out of uni and when I told my dad I was dropping out of my university, he was really angry. He's like, what? 
And I was like, but I signed a record deal. And he was like, oh, okay. But um, until then- Will they pay off the loan? That's what his next question was, was it? Oh, no, definitely not. Oh, I had to do that. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't part of the deal, unfortunately. But I mean, it's a really useful thing to do to go and study. But um, obviously, if your path takes you somewhere else, then it takes you somewhere else, you know? Yes, yes, definitely. And now, of course, there are so many different ways to educate yourself, such as- podcast like tape notes yes Um, and you get to watch the whole process in action tonight with a little help from sg lewis himself and i did think at this live recording that we might be presented a problem with your music sam because it instantly wants to make people dance (laughs) and we all sat here on an assortment of different kinds of chairs with headphones on and maybe it could be a kind of silent disco is that okay if people get up and move i I saw a bucket of beers on the way in so you know if if anyone feels so inclined i'm I'm not going to stop you but um, excellent so infatuation was one of our first tastes for audio lust and higher love the second album by sg lewis so Mm -hmm. We were lucky enough to talk to you before, Sam, on mm-hmm. episode 69 of Tape Notes. If you haven't checked it out, you really should. Was it um, episode 69? Episode 69. I know, it sounds saucy. <laughs> we chose that number especially for you. Yeah, um, I was waiting for yeah. my moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was the Times album. Uh-huh. Having released that, I mean, it's not that long ago, February 2021. Uh-huh. What did you want to do with the next record? So I always thought that I would take a lot of time off in between albums to sort of refocus and kind of get inspired again but it was uh middle of the lockdowns we'd gone back into lockdown and i took about 10 days off of making music and then i got really bored so i was like well better start the next one so i started to just kind of throw stuff at the wall as such trying to find like a path to kind of center around and i I kind of find it hard to make projects without kind of a, a central concept or theme so once once I had a few songs in front of me, then uh, the concept sort of started to appear in front of me. And then from there, was able to kind of really like zone in. And then I, I sort of spent a series of, I did, went to a couple of residential studios and I would go for like a month or two with uh, a couple of close collaborators. And then we would work intensely for like, uh, you know, four to eight weeks. And there would be pretty much like very little contact with like the outside world in those periods. So it was really different for me because I guess the last album was very much, uh, it was more collaborative. There was like more features and stuff. And then the sessions were kind of more varied. I would do like a day or two with people. But in this format, I kind of would spend extended periods of time with the same group of people. And it kind of allows you to kind of dive deeper in those working relationships that you build. You kind of get more comfortable with each other. So then you're more willing to try stuff that you might not necessarily have tried before. Yeah. And does the title reflect any of that or does it reflect I mean yeah, you're talking so, about a concept so what do you lust and high love the kind of general concept being this kind of idea of exploring lust versus love and how the two can be sort of confused with each other and how one version of that is kind of like a short-lived rushy kind of egocentric version of love and relationships and then the second half being this kind of more fulfilled actualized version and uh, something that's kind of more longer lasting and so kind of exploring the kind of yin and yang element of that as well, how those two kind of different versions of love and relationships can be confused with one another. But just that they kind of also represented two different sonic worlds. I kind of found that they had two different sounds. And so I was able to kind of build these two separate worlds that were like almost night and day or yin and yang, like I said. Yeah, very interesting. Well, the first track we're going to look at is Lifetime, which I think comes from the second half of that yes. that journey. Yeah, it's a soppy um, one, definitely. Excellent. So we're, you're going to play the master. Cool. And we'll get a little taste of it.
A Little Taste of Lifetime by S.G. Lewis from Audio Lust and Higher Love. And that comes from the second half of the album, Track 10. So this is, yes. is that the Higher Love section? Yes, exactly. The song was kind of written about one of the collaborators, Ed Druitt, who I wrote it with. We were sat at dinner. We'd been working for weeks. And so it's me, Ruben James, Jay Moon and Ed Druitt. And we were having dinner. And we were, we'd had some drinks. And Ed sort of told the story of um, how he met his now wife. So when he was like 12 years old, he walked up to her in the shopping center and was like, can I have your number? And so they were friends for like 15 years or something and they were always dating other people. And then one day he was really drunk on a flight and he had like Wi-Fi in the air and uh, he's flying back from LA and he got really drunk. And he texted her and he's like, I've waited my whole life to tell you, but I'm, I'm in love with you sort of thing. And he told this story and I was like, wait, pause, let's run to the studio. <laughs> I was like, hold that thought. And then... He wrote this song. So, wow. Yeah. What so, yeah. a great story and what a great line. Yeah. So he texted this. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, I kind of uh, plagiarized his text, I guess. Right. Brilliant. So that gave you a line. And you, what did you first do then when you had that line? So this kind of the way that I was working on this album was different to the last album because a lot of the time we were working almost like as a band. So we were working in a room kind of like this, but we were sort of set up in four different like stations. So... I was at the laptop with a microphone to my mouth, kind of like this. So I was cutting my own vocal as I was going. So we'd like write a bit and I would put down the scratch vocal and then I was kind of editing the vocal as I was going. So I was sort of producing and singing at the same time. Then Ruben James, who's like an amazing keys player, was at like, he had a Wurlitzer and a Rhodes and he was basically just playing chords. Jay Moon is like a guitarist and also plays keys as well. So he was on guitar most of the time. And then Ed, who I co-write a lot with, we were just working on lyrics together and he'd kind of mess around with some guitar too. But it was almost like a band setup. So we'd be playing ideas to each other as if we were like a band rehearsing, which was really different to how I'd worked before where it was very like beat focused. And then I would kind of go in with a collaborator and who work on a top line. So it kind of produced very different results having that different style of working. So with this, Ruben started playing the, the chords that you hear, like the first chords he started playing. And then I just started to, well, I wrote the hook, I had the idea for it and was singing it in the room. And then we just started to stack up the kind of choir that you hear on the record. And I was just looking at the project file and there's, yeah, it's about 113 by the time I just deleted some dud ones. But there's all these stacks of vocals that are basically gang vocals from all of us in the room just right. singing different harmonies. I mean, I'll solo these now. So you had this, which is all the doubles. Then we started adding these harmonies. So. Added a couple more. So we would also, um, as we were recording these, I would basically put the mic up and then we would kind of stand in different parts of the room to kind of try and achieve that like choir effect and also kind of changing the voices every time so like try and sing in like a different tone every single time to sort of add timbre and texture yeah. so and then, it's many people not just the four of you no exactly and, and just using one mic uh, just one mic i think it was a u87 but I, I think you're able to like switch the mic pattern to omnidirectional as well so it's kind of moving where the mic was and stuff. And then as you're adding more and more. And then once I was then producing the actual end version, I linked up with Jay Warner, who's an amazing vocalist that I've worked with before. I just wanted to add more texture. And he's got one of the, the most 
insane voices. So I basically doubled every single harmony with him. And I mean, if you solo his vocals, they're pretty. Yeah, he's got like incredible tone. And were they singing to any music? I mean, you said oh, that yeah. Ruben had come up with some so, chords. I, yeah, so I sort of um, skipped a few steps here. So let's, let's go back to basics. I basically built a very rough version of what you hear as the final beat. It was kind of one of those songs that didn't change loads and loads between the original. In fact, I'm going to play the demo quickly. So this is what it sounded like after night one. So it's largely the same, but just without some of the things that make it really immersive and the things that make it feel a bit more finished. This is what you would have made after having dinner yes. and hearing that story of Ed's and yes. then running back to the studio yeah. to kind of take up your instruments and, and exactly. see what's so going to happen next. You can hear it's kind of like Rhodes, drums, bass, guitar. I'll show you what that sounds like. So basically I built this drum beat. So basically what you've got going on there is some drum breaks. I think that's an Oliver loop, which if you produce, you're probably familiar with Oliver samples, but they're just that good. I have this kind of beefy kick as a sub kick. I actually just low pass that. So that that's only playing in the choruses. So that's just to give a bit more knock. And I've got a top kick somewhere down here. My project files are really not that organized. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is interesting tonight because um, everybody can see the screen that uh -huh. Sam is looking at. Oh, here we go. I found everything. So here's my main kick. So that's kind of got a bit more top end on it. It didn't quite have the sub character that I wanted. And then this break on top, it's like a live break. So then also just using like a transient designer to take some of the room out of some of those breaks. So this is just a native instruments transient designer. So if you take it off, you'll hear and get all that room. If you put a transient designer on, then it kind of tucks it in a little bit. And then for the more sort of plug-in inclined amongst you, this is the drum bus. So this album, I kind of got more into compressors, which is really boring and nerdy to most people. <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, ultimately if it works, it works. So. I wouldn't like emphasize to think about this too much, but up to this point, I kind of just been like compression is compression is compression. And then I got really bored and started looking at different compressors and their characters and stuff. So on this, I was using an API 2500, the UAD one, as opposed to a real one, but I just really like it as a bus compressor. It just kind of makes, it's a really good kind of glue compressor that I like using on drums. It just kind of tucks everything together and stops anything from poking out especially when you're working with electronic drums, it can sometimes sound, you know, your end drum beat can sound very, you can hear each part separately and it's, there's no kind of illusion of someone playing the drums, but especially I was listening to so much like 80s yacht rock and stuff. Basically when clubs were shut, my music tasted a weird sort of, it went off course slightly because I guess with clubs shut, I stopped listening to so much kind of dance floor music because obviously mm. without a context it was a little difficult to kind of imagine a context for it so all of a sudden I was listening to all this um yacht rock and 80s pop music and it's all kind of live drums but I'm not a drummer I'm a really bad drummer actually so I was trying to really with this drum beat here I was trying to sort of 
find a good balance and sort of have the feeling of like live drums but then have the weight of electronic drums so i was using these live breaks to achieve the feeling of the the live drums and then kind of adding in heavier elements like the sub kick and stuff just to make it feel slightly more contemporary and more like my music and then i laid up a bunch of claps i was just standing there doing claps for about eight minutes bunch of reverb on those and then there's a couple of these transition things which are basically just i was playing a cymbal with like soft mallets and then putting that through a flanger so put that all together you get like this But that was actually a real symbol that you were yes. playing. Yes, yeah. yeah, I recorded that. And do you put that compression over all of this at once? Yes, or, yeah. so this drum bus here, if you can see the screen, got the API 2500 first, so it's all just kind of tucking it together. Then I went to Oxford Inflator, which is basically, it's like a maximizer. I don't even know exactly what it does, but it's just really good. Um, <laughs> it, it makes stuff loud, which is great. And then into this tape emulation is UAD again, it's just to give it a bit of source, give it some really nice like tape distortion artifacts. Is it possible to hear the drums without that yes. stuff and I'll, then hear it with it? Yeah, and... I'll take everything off now. So this is what the drum bus sounds like without all of this. And then add it all back on like this. So it's kind of subtle in a way, but you just hear everything kind of tuck into each other and then also a bit of volume. And it just kind of knocks harder. Like when those plugins are off, I don't find it as like, doesn't make me want to nod my head as much. Yeah. So yeah, so once I had the drums, I'll solo these, the roads that Ruben was playing. So this is the beautiful playing from Ruben James. So this is really simple. It's just, I think it was a Rhodes rather than a, a Wurlitzer. And then just a chorus plug-in on there just to kind of give it some stereo depth. And then got him to kind of double the chords on piano and the chorus. And at this point, while you're creating the beat, is he fiddling around with his roads at that point? Or is well, he waiting for you? Or are you doing it together? So what? the thing about Ruben is he's like a prodigal keys player. This is like the first thing he played. And then sometimes if I let Ruben mess around with it too much, he'll change the chords 10 times in the next 15 minutes because right. he's sort of bored of them himself because he just has so much musical information. He's such a genius that like the first thing I capture is sometimes the end thing. So he'd... So I played all this in the first 15, 20 minutes. And then, I mean, Ruben contributes to many different things like lyrics and he's like a general sort of amazing force of nature in the studio. But all these keys takes were down in the first kind of 10 minutes, I would say. And then I was kind of talking about, you know, contemporizing this song because I wanted this song to be, I wanted it to sound like some of those records that like I grew up listening to, like, Hall and Oates, Steely Dan, uh, Bobby Caldwell, these kind of like old 80s pop music and stuff. And But I wanted it to still feel, I didn't want it to feel pastiche or kind of like, just like it could have been from that era. I wanted it to have elements that weren't necessarily as present in the music back then. So then 
I started to add a few elements that kind of gave it something that separated it from just music from that era. So then started to add like pads like this, like more kind of digital pads rather than 80s, like analog synth pads, kind of things that weren't present or yeah. weren't available. And then I also started to kind of add noises and textures because if you listen to the demo, it's very like elemental, but I basically figured out how to, I mean, now that I know how to do it, I'm kind of feel like I feel stupid for not knowing how to, like I was trying to figure this out for ages, but basically all those kind of like disco noises you hear on like, all those kind of like disco, like boom yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Basically I bought a Prophet 5 and if you take a synth and like crank the resonance and just have a noise generator. So you take any kind of melody out and you just have noise and then full resonance and then mess around with the cutoff. You kind of get all those like boos and stuff. <laughs> and then, so I'd feed that into a delay pedal. Um, so I bought this uh, Zen delay, it's called. So I would have the synth going directly into that and into the computer. So, and basically if you mess around with the feedback or the delay time and the feedback, you kind of, you get a change in pitch. So if you listen to this, you get these kind of slightly Daft Punky space effects. You could lose yourself in yeah. making those for hours. Yeah, I, I did. I spent many, many hours fiddling around with that. It's really fun to do, but these, just those little touches like that kind of help bring a record out of like just being an imitation of something from a past era and kind of help give it some context. So, I mean, playing that in context, you can kind of hear. So I was just scrolling through it and I wanted to touch on this again because we spoke about this last time, but um, I very much started as a producer and I, the thought of singing used to completely scare the shit out of me. And then kind of the more time I spent in the studio, I kind of, I guess, gained some confidence in it. But then on the last album, I put out a song called Chemicals and it ended up being sort of the most popular track off the last album. So then I guess that instilled sort of a, a, like a confidence in me, but then also like a curiosity that I wanted to just like explore that a bit more and kind of push myself to do that. So I know there'll be people in this room and people listening that see themselves as producers or instrumentalists and but just try singing because like everyone can sing a little bit. Like even if you think you can't sing, you kind of can. And there's so many tools available to you as like a, a producer, you know, to help you get to where you need to be in order for your vocal to be bearable to your own ears. Also, I feel like no one likes the sound of their own voice. Like even when I'm tracking vocals, I have to like remove myself from my immediate voice in order to stop myself from just crunching myself out and being like, ah, oh, shit. So um, I just wanted to kind of look at this vocal chain just to kind of like show you how I make my own voice bearable um, for myself. So start off with some tuning. In fact, I'm gonna take all this off and then we can see just how much the plugins are doing. <laughs> so, got tuning. Sunday nights, been and gone. So then some EQ, take out all the low end. I have a really like muddy voice, so I just try and take a lot. I mean, it's going all the way up to 
270 hertz on this, which is really high pass, but Sunday nights, some compression, then a bit of high end. This plugin called Gem Dopamine is great for pushing air through vocals. It basically, it imitates a Dolby tape effect, which is this old engineering technique that they basically did to push top end through vocals. And it just saves you having to like push high end on EQ, which like sometimes can cause phasing issues and stuff. Um, Deessa, Waves Doubler, which I use on my voice a lot. It just basically makes your vocal kind of, gives it a stereo effect and kind of makes it sound a little bit more saucy. Sunday nights, been and gone. Soothe. This is a great plugin for lazy EQers amongst you, basically. It's just really good at taking out nasty resonant frequencies without you having to sit there and zone out on them. So um, if you're lazy like me, then this is really great. Some more EQ. Don't know why I've done that again. Just felt the need to cut more low end. Some more high end stuff because my voice is so muddy. And then some reverb. Sunday nights, been and gone. And then just a little bit of sidechain compression just because... I like the vocal to duck sometimes. So I do that quite a lot with my vocal. It's more of a preference thing. Some people actually don't like that on vocals because it kind of makes it more of like an instrumental element than a lead vocal sometimes. Especially with kind of dance leaning music, it's just nice for the vocal to kind of duck with the music sometimes. You kind of get more of like a, a nodding effect. And then finally, I did this delay bus. So it's just um, a H delay on like half notes. And then the delay then goes through a reverb and then the reverb, there's a flanger after it. So basically the flanger is constantly moving. So what this does is it just moves the delay around the stereo field. So it adds interest and movement to a vocal because your lead vocal is always kind of going to be in the middle. But if the delay is kind of moving around sort of in the stereo field in your headphones it can just kind of add a nice psychedelic element to something so so yeah that's kind of how i process my own vocals and, and yeah. then get it to a fascinating point. yeah and create that magic and then there are a couple of other elements here um like the bass line oh uh, yeah and also the little guitar yeah uh Jump through these now. So we have the bass. So this is Jay Moon. Jay mm. is an amazing bass and guitar player. So this is just a live bass, basically. There's just a little bit of compression, bits of distortion. And then I've got decimal on here, which is basically a bit crusher. Again, this is kind of a preference thing, but basically sometimes with um, bass, so much music is consumed you know, on iPhones and on like Apple headphones and stuff where there might not necessarily always be a lot of bass reproduction. So basically that bit crushing of you here adds like a kind of ringing at the top of the bass sound. What that means it, for me on like a mixing level, it means that you can hear the bass on an iPhone speaker or something, you know, where you might not have sub bass or something, but it's just kind of uh, adding some high frequency content to that. So yeah, and then that's just kind of being sidechained again. In fact, I didn't even push the low end on that. I cut the subs because I had the, the sub kick kind of taking up that like sub 60 hertz. So then my live bass, I didn't need that carrying any sub. Because, I mean, I don't really know if this is uh, true of 
all music and as ever they're just rules you don't have to follow them necessarily but with dance music if you have like your kick and your bass both taking up kind of that sub region then they kind of compete for space and then your mix kind of gets all money so yeah then the guitar is J as well we've got this really simple this is like a CLA guitar plugin which is just a really good like instant sort of amp mod and then Valhalla reverbs which I used on everything and then oh this is interesting so basically I had the song to a point and then I worked with a someone called Simon Hale he's an amazing string arranger and uh, on, on the last record I worked on Feed the Fire with him but the song got to a point and then I was on R and about whether it needed it so we went down to to Air Studios in North London and basically got to uh, record a bunch of strings for the album with Simon Hale. So uh, he worked on the arrangements and kind of um, spoke on the phone and, and sort of uh, the way that Simon works, you kind of you tell him what you want and then he won't send you what he's done until you get into the room with the players because he's such an advocate for the magic of like live strings that he doesn't want to send like a MIDI version of it. He wants the first time you hear it to be in the room. So there's a big element of trust. I mean, I was just solo this and you'll see why I trust him so much. <laughs> and then later on, it gets a bit more. Yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah, they sound lovely. And it's interesting when you hear all those different elements like the the guitar and the keyboards and the strings on their own, mm-hmm. without the beat, you could create a very different song. Yes, yeah. It, this is kind of the most traditional sounding track I've probably done. And it's definitely like an ode to like uh, the music I grew up on and stuff. So there's a lot of very like traditional elements in there. And it's kind of like pretty far removed from you know some of the dance music i've made and that was kind of the main challenge with this track was i knew that i loved the song but it was like striking that balance in the production of like not wanting it to be pastiche or just an imitation of something from that era so those little details are really important like i did a lot of different versions so this is like version 19 of the same kind of structure because you know all those things that we discussed like the vocal processing, these kind of tiny little bookmarks really add up to like the bigger picture of how a track is perceived or how I personally perceive the track. Just tiny little things that when you go back and listen to music from the past, there's like certain ways that they would like process vocals. Like when I play that vocal, you can kind of tell that that's from just the amount of effects and compression and high end it's not something that sounds like it would be from the 80s so really that's one of my favorite things to do is just to combine sounds from past eras and then to kind of update it with kind of small elements of things that wouldn't have come from there and then i think you kind of end up with something that is a good nod but not kind of just a an imitation 
Yeah, it feels contemporary now. It feels 2022, 2023. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe play up through the song and, and introduce all the elements cool. uh, to round things off. Absolutely. So we've got the drums here. Okay, so we've got all our drums and a bunch of noises. And then the bass. Then we've got the keys. Guitar. And then vocals. And strings. That's great. I mean, it has such a fantastic laid-back feel, that <laughs> track. And it definitely fits the idea that this is the high I love section yeah. of the album we kind of feel a bit loved up now <laughs> and i think there's a smile on everybody's face <laughs> thank um, you it's um it's definitely pretty uh soppy and celebratory yeah sure. uh, it's great and i love the idea that it it all came from that little story that ed was telling you yeah for no, sure fantastic it's, it's a good story so that is lifetime we're going to look at another song call on me in just mm -hmm. a moment but we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with call on me fantastic excellent thank you well, <laughs> <laughs> you may have heard us talk about tape it before and if you haven't then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you tape it is an iphone recording app made by musicians for musicians Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out.
This episode is supported by Musiversal, an amazing new service for working with session musicians remotely. If you use session musicians or would like to, but it's been too expensive or hard to organize, this is for you. And we have a special offer for any Tape Notes listeners, 25% off for the first three months, and you get to skip the wait list, but more on that in a moment. I've got David from Musiversal here to tell us all about it. Hello, David. What is Musiversal? Hey, John, thank you so much for having us on here. Appreciate it a ton. Musiversal is an online remote recording studio for artists, producers, composers, anyone who's a music creator to work with session musicians remotely. In a couple of clicks, you can go on and you can book a session with a drummer or a guitar player, a piano player, you name it, they're on the platform And so the way that it works is all of the sessions are hosted over live stream. So all of the, you know, revisions and feedback and all of the different little, you know, hey, um, would you mind, you know, moving to the ride symbol for the fourth bar? Or would you mind, you know, finger plucking instead of using a pick? You know, all of those types of creative choices can happen quite literally as if the musician is in the room just done over live stream. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And in a way, the clue is in the name, Musiversal. It means that whether you're a beginner or whether you're somebody with a lot of experience, you can still get access to the same kind of level of musicianship and creativity. Yeah, it's amazing because it allows the music to have expression on it and musicianship that, you know, if I'm sitting in my basement playing piano versus a piano player that's played for, you know, Jay-Z or has been playing for 25 plus years, the material that comes out of that is going to sound night and day. What does it cost? So the service is $200 a month US and included in that is all of the sessions. So there's no additional fees or anything. You know, you get to book as many sessions as you can have per month. To put it in perspective, the average user probably books about five to seven sessions per month. But we actually have some users booking 10, 12, 15 sessions per month. So I mean, you can do the math on 200. The The deal really is awesome. And it, it allows people to work with incredible musicians and, and, you know, not break the bank. It sounds great. Can you remind us what the offer is for Take Notes listeners? Well, look, we're so thankful um, that you guys are having us on here. What we would love to do is offer 25% off per month for their first three months. And then the other cool part is they get to skip our wait list. So, you know, we usually run a wait list. It's about two weeks long. But in this case, you know, finding us through this episode, you could have a session as early as tomorrow. Fantastic. And to get the offer, all you have to do is find the link in any of our recent episode show notes. David, thank you so much for speaking to us. And maybe one day we'll be talking about a piece of music that's been created using Musiversal. That would be incredible. We cannot wait for that day. So we're ready to go and we're ready to listen to another track from the Audio Lust and Higher Love album by S.G. Lewis. The next song is Call On Me. I'll turn to Sam to kick it all off and give us a blast of the master.
So that is Call On Me, and I think we can tell that must be from the audio lust side of yes. this album. Take me home with you. That's <laughs> no, imploring. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you can tell, but yeah, it's definitely uh, a rushier, kind of uh, more intense and lustier kind of song. It's definitely lust. lustier. Yeah. And that is uh, Tova Lowe, who you've collaborated with many times uh, on vocals there. So mm. in contrast to Lifetime, which we just heard all about, mm. how did this one start? So I was working out of Sleep Sounds in London, which is an amazing studio in West London. And I was working with my friend. So his artist name is Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. Um, for shortening purposes, we're going to call him Teed. But I was working with Teed. I've, I've worked with Teed a lot. He's an amazing artist. So if you haven't heard his music, he just put out a record um, this year and it's my favorite album of the year. But um, so we were just making instrumentals mainly. It was kind of in that sort of throwing stuff at the wall stage of the album where I was just kind of um, collecting sounds and trying different sound palettes. And the instrumental that I started, that we made or when I left the session, um, I labeled it Belgium Banger because I'd been listening to this compilation is called The Sound of Belgium. And there's also a documentary somewhere online. It's basically about the like Belgium rave scene that basically then in turn influenced 80s new wave and that kind of like Lynn Drummy industrial sound that we now associate with that era. But a lot of it kind of came from Belgium. Anyway, this is- Very was interesting. The- I mean, that, that was a scene that it was kind of early 80s mirroring the electropop scene over here, but had a darker side to it. Yeah. It a was- slightly slower feel to it as well. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, the compilations go like all over the place. They're really interesting to check out. They're all on Spotify. But yeah, there was like a slightly more industrial feel mm. to it, I think, and like an intensity to it. So um, once we, we were working out of Sleeper and Sleeper is this amazing kind of- um. It almost looks like a spaceship cockpit as a studio. And it's a, it's an amazing studio to work as a producer because when you're sat at the computer, you're surrounded by instruments, like everywhere you look. And there's like synthesizers everywhere. It's like an uh, unbelievable room. But it makes making music in it really fun because you can just run around playing a bunch of synthesizers and stuff. So we worked on uh, this together. And this is what the beat sounded like when I left that session. which is largely similar to the end record, but the structure's a little bit different. Mm. It sounds like a club track in this instance, yeah. really. It sounds a bit more acid. Yeah, it's a bit more kind of DJ focus, I guess. So the way it was made was Sleeper has all these toys, all these old drum machines, all these old synthesizers. And it means that there's very little in this song that was done on a computer. It's all kind of just recordings of old drum machines and stuff and synthesizers. So basically started with the drums. There's a Lin drum, which is basically Prince's favorite drum machine. So all these kind of kicks are all kind of Lin drum stuff. There's a couple of splice samples in there too. But basically, I started to put the Lindrum through guitar amps and amp emulations just to give it a bit of grit. So you have these kind of drums that start to... Like a slapback delay on that snare. And then, like I did on the last song, I kind of like to layer like a, a live break in sometimes just to kind of like add some texture. So you have this like super compressed break in there. And then some Oliver samples tucked in just to kind of make it a little bit more contemporary. So then you solo this. 
I can hear the cowbell somewhere. It's hiding. Anyway, the cowbell is also a Lindrum. So yeah, that's just an automated ring shifter, um, which is kind of making it, giving it that sort of like warp effect. Just winds up like that. So all those drums together just sound, you know, it's got all those like 80s sounds, but then with a few modern drum samples just to add that kind of contemporary weight. So then I started playing this bass line on a OB6, which is a synthesizer. That's like the main two elements and then everything on top is kind of extra, but that drum groove and that bass groove was kind of the foundation for the whole song. So then uh, played some chords. It's all OB6 pretty much. The OB6 is probably, I think it's the best synth that's like available out there. I use it for pretty much everything and it's probably the best like two and a half grand I've ever spent. Like it's one of those synthesizers that you pick up and like anything you do with it sounds good. So we did all these different bits. So what you're playing us is all OB6? Yes, it's all OB6 right now. And then uh, Teed played this lead line. Again on the OB6. OB6 right. again. And then there's a couple more bits in here. The two of you must have been like kids in a sweet shop in this place. Yeah, it's definitely a fun place to spend time and it's, there's so many different things available. But I do find myself going back to the OB6 every time. So yeah, once we kind of had this instrumental built and this lead line going, if I mute the vocals, this is what it sounds like. So then, yeah, it was kind of at a stage at this point, and then I met Tovlo. So we'd been meaning to work together for a while, but we'd never met. And actually, I, I met her husband before I met Tove. It was funny because I was at a Phoebe Bridges concert, and Matt Healy was the surprise opening act. So all the 1975 guys are there, and uh, her husband Charlie is a creative director and uh, his company works with the 1975 guys who I know you had on the podcast before. Yeah. Great episode. Was this in, thank you, um, was that in the States? I seem to remember him telling me that yes, he did a few. Yes, it, it was the Greek theatre, yeah. yeah. So I was there and I was chatting to Charlie, but um, we basically went on this night out and we started just like getting quite drunk and we went to a couple of bars and we were becoming fast friends. And I hadn't even like heard his name yet. We were just kind of like, <laughs> and then uh, it was quite late and he was like, oh, I think you're working with my wife next week. And I was like, who's your wife? And he was like, oh, Tove Lo. I was like, what? <laughs> so um, so basically, because we kind of made fast friends, it was this sort of, um, not pressure, but like it was going to be really awkward if the session didn't go well because me and Charlie had become friends. And then it was like, he'd gone home and he was like, oh, you're going to work with Sam and it's going to be like great. So both me and Tove were saying afterwards, like, we we're both kind of nervous if it had gone badly. Yeah, it just would have been a bit awkward. So anyway, luckily it went well. So I took this instrumental kind of in its basic form into the session and I played it to Tove and we started to write to it. 
So I will kind of solo some of Toe's vocals here. She has the most incredible tone to her voice. And where was this? Where were you meeting up together? I was working out a studio in LA. Tove lives in LA and she came down to the studio and then we started to write Call On Me. So Tove is, um, she's one of those artists who's also just like an incredible writer. She's like written lots of pop songs for other people. She wrote, co-wrote Ellie Goulding, Love Me Like You Do, which was like a huge, mm. but she works a lot with like the MXN crew, like Max Martin and all that lot. So um, they're, the way that they approach pop music and writing music is just incredible. They've learned so much about the art of like constructing songs. There's like an attention to detail that they take with the music that's kind of just another level really. So even with this, we wrote the first version and then we changed the lyrics like four or five times. And I'll quickly just play you a couple of the versions because we went, round and round in circles and ended up back at the start a little bit. So there was this version. So that was different. And then we got all conceptual and tried to write this like story in the lyrics. So then we went to like. another one then they changed the title of the song and sometimes this process it'd be easy to kind of like lose yourself in that process and lose sight of what is even good and we definitely did at one point we kind of drove ourselves a bit insane so yeah there's lots and lots of different versions but i guess it is to say like sometimes a song needs changing like sometimes when you have a good demo it's tempting just to be like great that's it and it feels good and you don't want to mess with it but something I guess I learned from Tove and that kind of camp is that it can always be better and you can sort of mess with it and it, you can improve lyrics. So we really worked at it and then we ended up with the, the version that you guys hear. So she was saying as well, you know, I don't know, I think that's not right. I think we can come up with something better. Yeah, we yeah. and, you know, we're both kind of trying to be polite, I guess, in the process. And, and you know, you want to like make your collaborator feel seen and heard and but... Ultimately, there was a point where we had like different opinions on what the lyric should be. And we were both trying to be so nice about it. So we were like, well, uh, <laughs> like neither of us were like, it has to be this. But the final version was really like a compromise that we kind of like met in the middle. And actually, I'm really glad that we did because the stuff that she changed was improved the song dramatically. And uh, it's one of those ones where now that I've had time to reflect on it, I'm glad that we did change it. So yeah. yeah, and even going back to those versions now, some of the lyrics feel kind of like clunky and like sometimes if a lyric is clunky, it can, especially with a dance record, it can kind of take you out of the illusion of the record and phonetics of lyrics are so important and especially on dance music, you know, once it was going like, call on me, I'll make you remember, tonight we'd leave our bodies forever. It was just a bit too clever in places and sometimes, especially when it's like escapist, dance music moment trying to be too clever can kind of make you go wait what was that like what did they say <laughs> like where are we what? so so yeah the phonetics and the way that they flow off the tongue is really important and that's why you know there's so many successful songs that it's lyrics are important and the meaning of lyrics are important but there's so many songs that are essentially gibberish at the same time but they feel good you yeah know? it's yeah. like or they even sound like something completely different so it's it's worth working at that and making sure that there's nothing in there that's super clunky. Yeah. But um, 
Let's hear what you came up with then. Yeah, so let me solo some of Toe's vocals. So yeah, I wanted to just talk through some of the, the vocal production here. So Tove has like an amazing vocal tone. So there's kind of not the same hurdle that I'm facing when I'm recording my own vocal, which is like her raw vocal sounds great. But for the style of the music, there's still things that I wanted to do to kind of add that sort of drama and that sort of epicness to it. So really, it's a similar vocal chain in its essence you know there's a bit of tuning there's some compression there's some gating deessing doubler but then it gets a bit more interesting on these buses that i have here so basically i had a parallel distortion bus so you can kind of hear the vocals it's like a sort of um slightly distorted like crush to the vocal so basically instead of putting a distortion across the whole vocal where you'd lose clarity and you'd lose the kind of pop element of that main vocal just making this bus and having it in parallel, it means that if I just solo the distortion bus, you get all this kind of grit. So it's slightly distorted on the top. So that just kind of adds like a, especially with this song, saying the first half of the album, this kind of uh, rushiness and this intensity that I wanted it to represent. I guess the point I'm making is that, you know, leading back to the conceptual aim you know the song wanting to be this like mm. lustful intense song then just little decisions in your like vocal processing can kind of lean into the overall emotional image that you're creating you know if if lifetime had a distorted vocal it'd be like oh god that's horrible but like this song needs a bit of anger in there i guess or just intensity are, are you able to play toe's vocal without any effects yeah absolutely lay under the stars all dusted in love I grab your chain dangling from my bow Yeah, so it's already like, it's great, but it's uh, just the effects you put on can help. Yeah, but I think it's really interesting because um, what you're talking about in a way is your own sonic identity. Right. In a way, because it, to make it sound like S.G. Lewis <laughs> and in terms of an album as well, uh -huh. you've got to come up with a, a kind of palette that, Right. Uh, ultimately identifies you rather than the individuals that you might get to help you. Right. You know, because say if this was Tove's album, then you might have a very different approach to her vocal because uh -huh. the identity would be her identity, whereas this is your identity. Right. That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of it like that. But I guess like if every single person in this room had that Tove low vocal, they would make a different decision along the mm. way based on their own taste as to how compressed they want it, how much reverb they want. And that's really like specific to each person. But these little micro decisions are the things that kind of make up a sonic identity like you're talking about. So that kind of happens both consciously and subconsciously. But you're right. The way that you process vocals can give your whole record like a different sonic identity, you know, like something like a, a Krungbin vocal versus a Taylor Swift vocal, you know, one yeah. is going to be spacey and psychedelic and washing and, Another is going to be very pop and sort of in your face. So those decisions are, are really important and they kind of add up to something much greater in the long run. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of cool little production things in here too. So basically, if you take an auto tune and you basically force it so that it can only play one note, 
you can basically get a full vocal performance just to play one note, almost like a vocoder. It sounds like this. So you get this really cool kind of like jumping formant effect. So if you take the water tune off, it sounds like this. So basically the auto-tune is forcing each one of those notes in a performance to that one note. And because it's a different interval away every time, you're kind of getting a different formant shift. So then without the formant shifter, it sounds like this, which is obviously a bit jarring. So then I put the formant shifter on afterwards and you get this kind of cool. And really all that's doing is adding a pedal note to the chorus because um, it doesn't always work musically, but for this song it really does. And then when you add all of Tove's vocals in, it adds this kind of texture, which if I play these together. If I take it out, put it back in. So yeah, it's just adding a bit of like interest to mm. the vocal and something that uh, is keeping the ear kind of interested in instead. Yeah, but um, it also seems to be enhancing the mood of what she's getting across. Yeah, it's uh, all these little things are kind of adding to the intensity of mm. it. And like, that's kind of the ultimate aim with this record was like intensity and that lustful element. So so the next thing we did with her vocal was this kind of post-chorus, which is quite fun to look at. I'll just solo this. basically for this post-chorus I just sent the lead vocal to this bus and then I'm just automating the formant so basically if you were to automate the pitch obviously you'd get out of key so basically I'm just using a plugin called Little Alter Boy which is a Sound Toys plugin and if you look at that when I play it the formant's just shifting down basically And then I did some like reverse reverb effects, which basically you get this like thing here. So yeah, again, it's all just kind of adding drama and intensity to that moment. So if I play it in context. So that's a cool little kind of post-chorus moment and add some sort of spaciness. And then, I mean, Toe's vocal is so good that there's not too much other kind of altering you have to do to it. There's some cool kind of BV moments like this thing here. Ah. It's very 80s pop kind of head down <laughs> moment. And then, yeah, kind of you have the, the final chorus. So the other thing... I guess with vocal production is if you have like three choruses in a song you want to be adding something different every time that like builds in intensity because if you've heard the chorus three times by the time you hear the third chorus you're going to be kind of bored of what you've heard so basically I try to hold something back for each time so 
there's harmonies that are in the last chorus that aren't in the first and same with the second chorus. So by the last chorus, you've kind of got a bit more. The shapes you make are driving me crazy. Call on me, you're working it for me. I keep on coming back for your body. So you only hear those for the first time by the third chorus. It just helps keep the listener engaged and kind of adds just interest. And then also we did these pedal harmonies that only come in in the second and third. So that's basically just getting Tove to sing every note of the F sharp chord because the song's in F sharp minor, sorry, F sharp minor. So um, it's basically just getting her to sing an F sharp, an A, and a C sharp. It's basically a long-winded way of doing a vocoder, but it just adds a kind of yeah, texture. Yeah, but that. it sounds great. And it means also that, in a way, in your creation mm -hmm. no she doesn't have to stand there and attempt to do anything crazy like this right no. but, <laughs> yeah. it, but it means you can do so much and and create yes. such movement within the track because the whole track gets quite intense near the end doesn't yes it? it does it kind of builds and then there's this very dramatic drum roll towards you once we kind of reach this point i then linked up with teed again and uh something that teed is really good at is um using really shit sounds to make something sound really good. I'll show you what I mean. So he adds these things that when you solo them, they sound kind of bad on their own. So. So not bad musically, but just like those are MIDI trumpets. And I don't think anyone is convinced that those are real trumpets, you know, it's kind of like your Casio keyboard trumpets. And then these chords here, which they're almost like big 90s trance chords. So on their own, they kind of feel pretty corny or like, they feel a bit like... Yeah, uh, I was very tempted to put yeah. my hands in the air. Don't hold back, John. <laughs> if you want to, you can. But it's to say, basically, and this is something that I only learned by working with, with Teed, is that sometimes these these kind of elements that might not sound good on their own might sound good in context. So the intensity of those big chords and the kind of abrasiveness of the trumpets in context make it sound like this. So they're in there, but in context, tucked in the right way, they just kind of add the intensity you want, but like, they work with the other elements in such a way that they don't sound so rubbish. But, yeah. um, but there's some stuff that he is very good at that do sound good solo. Like, <laughs> Just in case he's listening and thinking, but I make good sounds too. Oh, no, so. no, no, no. He will be listening. He'll be like, you motherfucker, Sam. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're making me sound shit. No, he's the best producer I know. So, hi, Orlando. So, all these little things just add up to a really, like, rich, harmonic kind of field as such. It just it makes something sound very immersive and epic
Have you been able to see a reaction to this? Is it? I have. Yeah. yeah. And how was it? It's been really great. Yeah. yeah it's really Excellent. cool. And it's um. Should everybody in the room be going like this now? Yeah. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been really cool playing it live, and uh, also seeing Tove play it at her shows has been really cool. Right. We haven't done it together yet live, but um. She's an incredible performer and her fans go hard for her as well. They're like, they really ride for her. Yeah. So, I mean, if anyone's been to a Tove Low show, I think they'll know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, you should. Yeah. But also, you know, the two should come together yes. uh, to perform this song. Absolutely. Fantastic. I'm sure we will soon. So, yeah, that's kind of most things in this project for really. Um, yeah. Oh, there's some cool space effects. So, again, we were talking about like effects and transitional stuff on the last song and it's kind of one of my favorite things to do now is those elements. Like how do you get from like A to B in a song and the extra noises that you kind of make along the way. So there's some really fun stuff in here. Most of these things are MS-20, which is a Korg synth. Um, you crank the resonance on an MS-20 and it like screams basically. And then there's a riser from a Juno as well. Just all these kind of different elements help signal that something's about to happen. It's also really fun to do because when you're doing it live, you get to right. like feel like, like you're controlling it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in effect, controlling the crowd. Yeah. I think the most embarrassing thing in the world would be for there to be like a fly on the wall recording of me making this song because <laughs> I can only imagine what my dancing looks like when I get into something. But it's part of the process. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, it sounds fantastic. So that is Call On Me. Yes. And we're going to look at another one of the songs from the album, Something About Your Love, after another break. Yes. Time for a quick Tape It feature highlight. Did you know that while you're recording, you can drop markers? No more scrolling through endless voice notes. Once you've finished, you can go back to the markers to find your best bits. You can also name your markers if there's a specific note you want to add. To find out more, head to the link in a recent episode show notes or use the promo code TAPENOTES for 50% off Tape It Pro. The next song we're going to look at is Something About Your Love. I guess if you give us a blast of the master, Sam, that would be great. Just a little taste of something about your love from Audio Lust and Higher Love by S.G. Lewis. And that is from the Higher Love section yes, of the album. Definitely. So that's going to be track 14. Yes. So, I mean, this kind of has a French touch feel. Yes. So I think it's pretty obvious immediately. I mean, to anyone who's familiar with Daft Punk or is a fan of Daft Punk, this is definitely an ode to digital love. When Daft Punk announced their retirement, I kind of went into a sort of mini period of mourning. So um, I basically 
uh, spent that period of mourning just kind of like studying them and just kind of fiddling about with stuff and sort of making a bunch of music that was like a, a bit of a tribute to them. Um, but it was a fun exercise for me because it was kind of studying like a an approach to producing and a creative process that was slightly different to my own. And it's always, it, you know, the more kind of different ways of approaching track you can kind of learn to do, the more kind of tools you have in your arsenal to make music. So kind of primarily biggest difference with this track is that um, it's heavily sample based. Well, actually, before we go to the sample, so I had the vocal hook and a rough idea of what the track would sound like kind of a couple of years ago, but I just hadn't, I hadn't figured out how to do the Daft Punk thing really and like, or do my own version of it. So I'll play you the first, actually it says V2, I lost V1. So this is what it sounded like kind of four years ago or something, three or four years ago. Just came through, it was a bit boring. <laughs> So yeah, like m musically you can hear what it's trying to do, but like it just stylistically isn't in the right pocket. And but the thing that kind of stuck with me was the vocal hook. It's like really simple, but it was, I mean, for anyone that writes music, you'll know that like you have these kind of ideas in your head and there's some that just stick for years and you just like can't get that one thing out of your head. So, so years later, I was just listening to a bunch of music and... I was just digging through old tunes. I was digging for samples because I wanted to try sampling as like an approach because I, I usually don't sample. I play instruments and kind of build from scratch. So it was almost like a fun exercise to take the sampling approach. And I found this song by Force MD's Tender Love. So I heard these chords and I was like, Oh my god, that's amazing, because it then goes into this kind of slow dance. Apparently this was like a big school disco, like, slow dance, in, especially in America. Wow. And I've played it to people. I mean, unbelievable. But those opening chords were kind of the thing that stuck with me. So I took a sampler and... Uh, so this is called Serato Sampler. It's a really good free piece of sampling software. You can basically throw a track in there and there's a, I mean, there's a function called find samples and it will basically cut a tune up for you and you can basically just immediately be presented with a bunch of usable samples. So immediately you can chuck a tune in and you just start playing. Anyway. It allows you to basically play a song as if it was like an instrument. So very quickly, once I'd messed around with this software a bit, I realized that you can kind of throw songs in and just kind of tap around on a keyboard and sometimes you'll find something really great. So I basically chopped up the opening chord sequence here. So, cause I wanted it to sound like those kind of like early 2000s French touch records. So samplers back then were like a lot more clunky. They weren't quite as like 
smooth and digital as they are now. You know, they were these kind of hardware old school samplers with limited memory. So basically I wanted it to sound more like a old sampler. So I left all these gaps in the sampling. If you look at the MIDI, there's like these kind of spaces. So when you're listening to it, it sounds like someone's playing like an old sampler as opposed to like a perfect legato digital one. It kind of makes it sound a little bit shitter and a bit more. Yeah. So those old samplers have like built in, the audio quality would be degraded through the dithering of the audio in the sample, in the sampler, or there's a natural built in like bit crushing element to a lot of those samplers. There's distortion elements that are introduced by feeding audio into a new piece of kit. So basically the next couple of steps were basically just degrading the quality of this audio. So taking a bunch of, information out using eq over compressing it using ott um i love this plugin it's basically just a completely just over the top compressor as the name suggests it's really good for that over compressed like was like radio quality so if i take all these off you'll hear what it sounds like so this is a sample chop without all the processing and then Add the EQ. Add some chorus. OTT. RC20, which is like a really good, uh, it's good for fucking up audio and just kind of, uh, it does emulation of like vinyl or tape and stuff. It's just got a bunch of tools to basically degrade the quality of the audio again. Bit crusher, a little bit of soothe, and then sidechain compression. So all of a sudden, it's kind of now like feeling a lot more like a French touch, like house record, as opposed to the kind of slow dance that we had going before. So then add the drums. So yeah, I was kind of reading about the sampling and then it was a case of trying to like reverse engineer the way that sampling would sound back then in 2022 and kind of trying to like essentially replicate the shortcomings of those old samplers, which is funny because the irony of it is like we have all this like amazing equipment now and we spend all our time trying to make it sound shit again. <laughs> but um, something, whether it's the nostalgia or it's just like something about the audio, which is like appealing to the human ear. Mm. some reason it's the same reason people use analog synthesizers or tape machines and stuff it's like there's something about the degrading of the audio yeah quality. but it's also in a way a bit like playing an instrument so you hear something and you want to replicate how that was played yes and this is kind of trying to replicate how they played that sampler yeah in a way and how they had to deal with whatever mm. shortcomings that might have had at the time mm -hmm. and they started to inadvertently create a style of music and a style of sound and a uh -huh. style of writing a tune in a way, yeah. which is kind of, it's kind of weird. And, and uh -huh. but it becomes a thing like that kind of glitchy, repeated yeah. thing. Uh -huh. It's like, oh, it's just like if you were just playing on a keyboard, uh -huh. just trying to repeat that. Yeah, it's those limitations that kind of like then breed the innovation in those genres. You know, it's almost like I always say that people kind of starting to produce music and stuff, it's, it's better to limit yourself to like one synth to begin with like mm -hmm. even if it's like a logic es1 like plug-in or something 
and to know that plugin inside out back to front like the first disclosure record was done on like stock logic plugins like there's limitations but guy and howard were able to you know make those plugins do absolutely everything they needed to do so yeah it's yeah. um sometimes too many tools at your exp at your disposal kind of cause you to the you just have too much choice almost yeah um, so, and so what happened next i mean when you create those sounds i mean do you have a go-to beat like you want a four four thing so, so do you have a go-to right i'm going to stick this drum on it for the moment and see what happens so up. again with this being a bit of a daft punk ode i sort of was reading about you know 909 drum machine was like a big thing for their music and stuff so it's like building up loops and stuff i had this shaker and then i added like a live break like i do with a lot of beats like i gated it then so this is it before and then I just added this gate in there that just kept all the transients. Then added this 909 hat. It's just like the most basic house hat ever, really. Then added a fat 909 kick. Ooh. And then this might be difficult to hear, but I just added this really, really low sub kick underneath it, like a sort of. If I solo it, see if you can hear it. It's basically just a sine wave being played at top knows what, a very low hertz. In context, it kind of adds like a... And then once again, the bus compression was a big thing. When I said before that I was kind of getting into compressors, the kind of like, audio quality of the compressors was something that like it was very distinctive of that kind of era and of that style because if you listen to it it's kind of nasty like it's like over compressed it's loud and it's like noisy like like it's not like a well balanced kind of there's not a lot of clarity but that's kind of the style so basically i was slamming it through this api 2500 uh, the main difference here being that I put OTT at the end and just that's kind of really bad practice in a way, but it sounded cool. So I just <laughs> kept it on. And then like if you were to approach it from a more kind of technical engineering standpoint, you might be like, uh, not sure that's a good thing to do, but it made it sound kind of more French touchy. So I kept it on. So yeah, I had the sample and the bass kind of working together like that. And then, ah, uh, Oh yeah, just so you can hear sort of how we got here. So I played that first version. I tried to reproduce that vocal hook at some point again, and I tried to make it really disco-y. I'll play it. I was trying to do like Nile Rogers y right. kind of... Your friend Nile, yeah. of course. Oh, yeah. yep. <laughs> You've worked with him before. Of course, mate. Yeah, uh, that's still surreal to me. Sometimes... When you like say that back to me, it feels like I'm lying. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh yeah, I did work with Noel Rogers, but um, still really surreal. So did that version and didn't feel quite right. So then ended up at this version, started building and then laid down the bass line, which is basically, it's a synth bass, but it kind of sounds like a live bass. Again, that kind of bit crusher on the top is really like, it's a again just like a, a stylistic kind of 
identity of that era, I guess. So once we had all those elements in, it kind of sounded a bit like this. Oh, this is funny. So I added some pads in and I fucked up one of the pad takes and I left the studio and I can't remember why I didn't re-record it, but I basically kept the wrong pad take in here. And I'll play it and it's horrible on its own, but in continent, I'll play it there. That last one is a really dissonant, horrible chord in the key. Like if I loop that last, it's wrong. Like it's not in the key. There we go. But I got really lazy. I mean, it, I could pretend that the dissonance was like intentional, but it just wasn't. But in context, it just didn't bother me enough to change it. And I couldn't afford to go back to sleep sounds for another day. So I kept it in there and it's in the final record and it's completely wrong. It's, it's kind of buried, but once yeah. you stop it, you can hear it. Um, so then I layered a OB6, which I said before, I love. And I got the chords right this time, which was nice. That's the right chord. And are there, there are these kind of crazy keyboard runs as oh, well. Oh, yeah, sorry. I did forget about that. So if anyone's familiar with Digital Love, there's like an amazing synth solo. And as I said, this is really like an ode to that record. So I did my best job at shredding some synth keys, which is the least cool thing I've ever said. Oh, yeah, actually, there's a couple of things here. Okay, cool. This is not the synth solo. This is the synth that's playing in the build-up. Just like loads of resonance as the filter's opening. It's kind of building. And then here comes the totally over-the-top synth solo. So if we play that in context, it's a little bit less over the top. So there's a couple of takes I pieced together because I was figuring it out and then I was using uh, flex time to adjust my shitty timing in places. This little run here. But I was trying not to over fix it because part of the fun of it is like the live element. So it's really not perfectly timed at all. Like if you put a click to it. It's pretty offbeat. But that brings in the humanity, doesn't it? I'm trying to not over edit things anymore. I mean, if you, obviously if you're working on like pop music um, in a more kind of uh, ambitious sense, then those details matter. But Sometimes keeping in mistakes is a good thing. But I did get better at playing it live because then I had to play it like a hundred right. times. So I did get slightly better at it, but um, it was pretty sloppy at the time. Um, so yeah, and then the last thing was kind of adding in the vocal hook. 
Um, I didn't reproduce this with this vocal in mind. I kind of made this whole instrumental and then I remembered that old demo I did. And right. I was like, oh, that would work. So I grabbed the old acapella and I just threw it on top and it sounded... Cause, so this is the old one. I think I did end up fucking it up a bit. Let's have a listen. Yeah, so that's the old acapella with a bit of formant shifting and stuff going on to make it sound a bit strange. And I did end up tucking that into the final version, but I basically started to re-record all those parts and it sounds something like this. So yeah, as you can hear, it's like a really heavily affected vocal. Obviously, like, especially with it being a bit of a Daft Punk reference, like the vocals are very like robotic in their music. So I really wanted to remove this from my like dry vocal as much as possible, really. So if I take all these plugins off. There's something about your love. There's something about it. And then Formant shifted it to kind of give it that almost like playful, robotic, like slightly higher pitched feeling. There's something about your love. Then added all the compression. There's something about your love. Doubler, high end reverb. There's something about your love. Delay. Something about and then sidechain compression. So then added with the old acapella, you get this kind of really heavily affected vocal. And then I just sang some harmonies over the top. Wait, that's a double. Ooh, that's high. He's struggling. <laughs> then this one. And that's pretty much everything in this track. And what what is formant shifting? Uh, just clarify that. Oh, yeah, sure. So basically, when you pitch a vocal down, the formant shifts and it goes, like the tone of it changes and it gets really like, like that's the best way I can describe it. You get that kind of like, it's kind of tone to it. Formant shifters, they've worked out how to shift the formant without shifting the pitch because usually in, in order to achieve that kind of change in formant, you'd have to pitch something down, but it would no longer be in key. But they've got clever plugins like Sound Toys Little Alter Boy now that basically allows you to just shift the formant without shifting the pitch. I'll show you quickly. So you started this. You could go. Which also became one of the kind of most overdone things in sort of 2000s dance music. So it almost sounds kind of cheesy now if you go like... I feel like I'm in like vodka revs on a Thursday night. <laughs> so yeah, it, it allows you to kind of change the perceived pitch of a voice without actually changing the pitch. 
Fantastic. Let's hear the master again. Yes. So I'll just drop us into that final drop. It's great. I love the solos. They make it feel like you're having such fun. Uh, yeah, I was definitely feeling myself. <laughs> yeah. So good. Um, thank you so much for something about your love. And um, we've got a couple of questions that we always ask people on Take Notes, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to open up to our audience Amazing. here. You've done this before, so you've got a good idea. The tech question. Uh-huh. piece of equipment that you can't live without or that is essential to the recording of this album. You know, anything that stands out. I mean, you mentioned a lot of equipment. Yeah, so I got a bit nerdy there so i'm sorry it's good um, people love it so i would say i'm trying to remember what i did last time and trying to do some different stuff but the ob6 i'm pretty sure i mentioned last time but it's just an unbelievable synth and i use it every day i would say api 2500 compressor it's just a something that i wasn't using on the last record and then in terms of a couple of plugins waves doubler this is great on vocals it's cool it's like a great bit of vocal source gem dopamine is like a great Dolby tape effect plugin that i was talking about and then i would just say say native instruments complete as like a sort of package as well it's pretty just um something i use a lot of but really i've found a lot more pleasure and kind of joy in just getting really into the ob6 and obviously like it's nice to have a lot of toys but like if you really just marry yourself to one piece of kit then you can kind of really produce some interesting results yeah totally and and the other question we always ask everybody is about advice whether you know you've received advice that you always stand by or uh-huh. always hold dear or since you've moved on since we last spoke to you about times mm-hmm. you know, whether you've learned some lessons that you'd like to share with people i think the main lesson being just try it and just like the fear of not trying something is the biggest thing that will hold you back from eventually getting to a place where you can produce or sing on your record. You know, if you're a great singer, but you don't think you can produce, just like, just do it and like get over that hurdle of like fear of yourself because a year or two down the line, you'll look back and you'll be really happy that you kind of put yourself in a position of discomfort because you'll learn something and while you might still always be a better singer than producer, you'll be able to do more things for yourself and have more creative control and then you'll be able to express yourself better in your music, I think. Yeah. I'm going to let some other people ask some questions. One over here. So that's great because you're very close. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hi, my name's Lockie and I was just wondering, how do you know when a song's finished? (laughs) That's a difficult question. Unfortunately, a song is never really finished. And given too much time, you will drive yourself insane with it. It's good to have someone you trust. Like uh, me and my manager, Grant, kind of go back and forth on like an A&R level. 
he'll sort of have a say in being like, this is done, leave it alone. And then just the point where you can't imagine it being any better or like, you know, you can't hear anything else. It's like the point where you're just, you have to let go of it at some point. But, you know, as long as by that point, it still makes you feel good and you're still proud of it. I mean, I've definitely murdered some of my own songs by going over and over and over it. And then sometimes you can't even lose sight of whether a song is even good in the first place or not, but you're never going to be a hundred percent happy with it. So there is a point where you have to let go of it. That's find great. Some, find you. some trusted people, I guess. Yes. Um, anybody else want to ask a question? If, look, if you could pass that on. Oh, yeah, sure. Hi, Sam. My name's Bert. Hi, Bert. Um, I'd love to know who your dream collab would be. Oh, um, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and also what your Spotify rap looked like. So the problem is the collaborations list is just eternal and ever evolving. Dream collaborations, Sade. Um, and Bonavere, I want to say those two great choices. Sade is a very rare Pokemon, so if she's out there somewhere, um, if, if she listens to tape notes, wouldn't it be great if she listens to tape yeah. notes? Or, I think practically every producer would love to work with her. Yeah, it's that would be, I think I'd just internally combust, but um, yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> and what did your Spotify rap ah, look like? Yes, sorry, so yeah, it was lovely. I mean, it's always funny when you get those rap things because the numbers are just nuts. They're like 50 billion million people have turned on to your blah, blah, blah. And they're like, ah, it was about 150 million streams, I think for the year. And then there's a bunch of other information and stuff. But, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean, this as positively as I can. And there's one thing I've kind of learned over the last couple of years is that the numbers will ebb and flow and some tracks will, stream really well and some tracks that you really love won't stream so well and a track that you don't love as much might take off because of a TikTok or an algorithm. But like they are essentially numbers and they are numbers that are controlled or influenced at least by the things around them. But the thing that really matters is when you play that song in a room and you see someone singing that song back to you and or crying to it or someone's making out with their partner. So those emotional connections are worth millions more than any multi-number figure. Yeah, I think we had a oh, got a question at the still at the back. Hello, I um I find it very interesting how you're saying you use like uh, a lot of the modern technologies and logic and stuff to emulate your older sounds like over compressing and like mm -hmm. artifacts in your sampler. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate this is probably going to be quite hard to answer, but like. How do you reckon your sound palette would be like if you were born, you know, 20, 30 years before you were? It's interesting because, um, and this is like a wider discussion in a way, but like a lot of that, that equipment was really expensive back then. And you could argue that there's a certain barrier for entry to music production 30 years ago. You know, you, you might have had to have a dad that has a studio or you might have had to have access to... Friends, you know, the best thing about modern technology is that like, if you can afford to get a laptop and buy a copy of Logic or Ableton or whatever, then you can basically do anything. That's really cool. I think it's a really great thing about modern technology. So the answer is like, my family wasn't musical growing up. So I think I'd, my music would sound really shit if I was born 30 <laughs> years ago, because I don't think I'd have access to any equipment. But if I did have access to it, I think 
I would resonate with similar sounds. And there's obviously got to be some kind of reason that I resonate with nostalgic sounding music. So I think that maybe it would just be yacht rock. Maybe. <laughs> That's fair enough. Maybe it would just it, be You'd just spend rock. more time learning that those instruments yeah. and then being good enough to get into a yacht rock Growing band. my mullet. Yeah, and, yeah, and getting a nice moustache. Yeah. Sorting out your image to go with the tunes. Yeah, be a great yeah. idea. I think if they can get the microphone forward now, that would be brilliant. Hello, I'm Anwen. Um, Hi, Anwen. Me and Lockie both do very amateur DJing, like uni-organised parties, and your songs always go down so well. Oh, amazing, um, thank so you. So I just wanted to ask about like the danceability. Mm-hmm. Do you go into making music kind of thinking, oh, this has to be so danceable, people have to be like proper bopping around their room mm-hmm. kind of thing? Or is it just kind of, you're not really thinking about that, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've made literally the most danceable song of all time, aka Call On Me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. So the answer is that it varies track to track and it even varies like album to album. Like Times was very much, it was a study of like 70s New York and disco music. So the dance floor was always in mind. And with that comes like certain techniques. Like we discussed and we were going through here, like is the kick hitting in the right frequencies? Like does it knock you in the stomach as well as punch you in the head? All these different things. So when I'm making a dance track, like something about your love, I'm thinking about those things. But with Audio Lost and High Love, with it being written in the pandemic, a lot of the time that was actually not a thought. Like, so something like Lifetime was kind of just more approached from a songwriting standpoint as opposed to trying to make it danceable. So yeah, there's definitely things you learn help with danceability, like techniques and just making sure your mix has all the right frequencies and stuff to make things move. But a lot of that is just um, having the right drum samples as well. Like, you know, the right kicks, the right snares that just like make you feel good. So um, it's definitely a thought in mind for a lot of the music. And uh, it's something that I'm still trying to learn to get better at. Very interesting. And we've got one more question. Yeah, hi, I'm Morgan. Hi, Morgan. Um, following on from the Spotify comment, I know that in your last podcast, you talked about how you still find it crazy how you got from SoundCloud to yeah. what you are now. Uh-huh. Do you find that anything that you've done since your SoundCloud days has changed in the sense of the way you produce or how you produce as well? Yeah. I mean, like from a technical standpoint, you're constantly learning. Every time you work with other producers or engineers, you learn new technicalities. I would say fundamentally it's the same thing it's like if it makes me feel good if i feel emotionally attached to it then ultimately that's the goal you're trying to you're trying to incite the biggest emotional reaction within yourself in the hope that it will have that effect on other people but i would say i've also kind of delved more into writing and producing for other people and in that respect that is a different approach because a you're kind of serving someone else's creative vision and then B, if you're working for like a pop artist, there's also, there's a perfectionism to pop, which is kind of also, it's really fun to learn. Cause it's like, you know, we were talking about like the MXN crew earlier, like Max Martin and stuff. Those guys are experts at making pop music. So like when I was working on Hallucinate for Dua Lipa, there's an element of stepping back and being like, okay, is this gonna work on radio? Is the intro too long? Does it get to the chorus quick enough? And that's like a different approach, but it's kind of fun. There's like a scientific element to that, which is kind of fun to learn. Thanks, Morgan. Great question. And thanks to 
all our questions uh, yeah. stretching across Thank, the room. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for sitting in for so long, everyone, and, no, and it's getting, amazing. getting nerdy with me. <laughs> yeah, what a great bunch of people you are. And we've got a few more thanks. I mean, thanks to Mother for hosting, of course, providing this amazing venue for this Thank episode of Take Notes. Thanks again to Sennheiser for our incredible wireless live rig. It has made this an amazing experience. I'm sure you agree. It's been able to let us focus on Sam's music so well and hear all those elements in such a kind of great quality. And of course, thank you for being here. Thanks for being such an amazing audience. And our biggest thanks must go to Sam George Lewis, SG Lewis. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, Ben. A real pleasure to have you back. On take no Sam. Really appreciate it. Uh, I really, I listen to like every episode. So I'm always like geeked out to be here because I'm like, yes, I get to nerd out and explain what I'm doing. So Fantastic. Yeah. It was really exciting. And um, we're going to choose a final outro song. Oh, Something yes. else from your repertoire. Something else from Audio Lust and Higher Love that, okay. that can play us out. I mean, vibe like this. Should yes. we go with that? I'm going to play vibe like this with Ty Dolla Sign and Lucky Day. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Let me make up for the time I missed. Been around the road, I'll take you on my next trip. When I pull up, I'ma slide like this Do your two-step, I do mines like this AP your wrist, girl, ain't no better time than this G5, it ain't no flyer than this Crocodile Birkin, I did it for Steve Irwin Whatever it takes to get you back, girl, I put the work in just Let me know where you wanna go Make believe in reality Don't slide on me, me it's real as you feel me Now you feel it, the energy In the meantime, between time and your arms, we